Welcome to the Battle Cry Podcast with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. You can watch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Convention of States Facebook and Rumble channels. I think the, the, the biggest concern that most folks have when you go to Congress is, and you know, once we open up Pandora's box, uh, you know, America is truly not as united as it was during the Founders' time. You know, we use the Senator's word, we've got woke, who would ever thought that gender would be a preference. And all of a sudden, if we open this up, gosh knows what we'll create. Um, so, how do we make sure that we get back to the Constitution and we don't get to something resembling what we have in the state of California? Well, first of all, if it resembles the state of California, I'm not sure where I'm going to go because I already left that place. That's probably getting a lot of people in this audience. I mean, this is something that I hear. This is the single most common argument against convention states. And so I, I want to present it as honestly and clearly as I can. I get asked this question all the time, so it's Rick. And what we're talking about is something that is commonly referred to as a runaway convention. And the way the runaway convention scenario goes, and again, I'm, this is just straight down the middle trying to present it as accurately as I can what the opposition says. They say that what's going to happen is if 34 states pass the resolution, which is what has to happen to get the convention, 34 states pass the exact same resolution, and the resolution says the only things that can be talked about are term limits for Congress and term limits for the deep state, fiscal restraints on the federal government, that would be things like a balanced budget amendment and tax caps and spending caps, and anything that would limit the scope, the power, and the jurisdiction of the federal government, that would shrink the federal government. All 34 states have to agree to that. And so this, this runaway convention idea presupposes that that's already been done. Okay, so 34 states have agreed. I gotta tell you, likely that's gonna be just 34 states with both houses controlled by Republicans. Then all those Republican legislatures and the remaining 16 states are going to do what's called commissioning their commissioners. They're going to issue instructions to their delegates or commissioners that are going to go to convention. Those instructions will limit the delegates or the commissioners to doing what those three things say. And states may limit them even more. In fact, some states like Indiana have put in what they call delegate limitation acts to impose felony penalties on any commissioner who doesn't do what they're supposed to do. States will retain the authority over those delegates. The delegates go to convention. Now this is where the runway convention comes in. And so our opponents say, well, what's gonna happen is those people from those 34 states and, and the crazy leftist states like California are gonna conspire to not follow these 34 resolutions that brought them into conventions and throw all of that out and to say, you know, we're gonna do whatever we want. And one, I just got to comment on human nature. This is going to be the biggest political event, literally, in the history of the United States of America. Everybody in America will be watching it. It's going to be wire to wire. It's going to be on C-SPAN and CNN and Fox and every radio station and television station. They're going to do profiles on all the commissioners. It's going to be round-the-clock coverage. And so these people are going to be under the white hot lights. They're going to have taken an oath to do what their legislature sent them to do. And the runaway convention argument says they don't care about any of that. They're going to go there and they're just going to do whatever they want. And one of the things I hear most often is what they're going to do is they're going to throw out the Second Amendment. I hear this one all the time. I take a little bit of personal insult to that. My, my mom is a retired law enforcement officer. My son's a Marine. 
Uh, Chuck Cooper, one of the longest term litigators on behalf of the NRA, on behalf of the Second Amendment, is on our legal advisory board. And the Second Amendment's not at risk, and I'm just going to do some simple math for you. Now, you got to forgive me, I come from Los Angeles, California originally, that's where I went to public school. My math may not be perfect, so check it. Right? It takes 38 states to ratify anything that comes out of convention. It's important we remember that the convention has exactly no power. All a convention can do is make suggestions. Now, I don't know about you, I've never been afraid of people gathering in a room to make some suggestions, but some people say that that's a really scary thing. And let's say they get crazy and they do all this stuff that I say they can't do and they propose to repeal the Second Amendment. They send that out to the states for ratification because it's just a suggestion, and now 38 states have to ratify the repeal of the Second Amendment. Now, if you do that math in the inverse, it means 13 states can stop any amendment. And if we're talking about the repeal of the Second Amendment, that means the 13 most conservative states in the United States of America could stop it. And the reality of a legislature is it means one house in each of the 13 most conservative states could stop the repeal of the Second Amendment. That's a pretty low bar to stop something. And by the way, what a legislature has to do to stop the uh, ratification of an amendment is nothing. Literally nothing. No hearings, nobody introduces it, nobody ever speaks about it, and then they have not ratified. And for those of you who haven't been around legislatures much, and I know Rick could affirm this for me, and legislators not just uh, audience could affirm this, the easiest thing for a legislature to do is nothing. It's not controversial to do nothing. So that's what it takes to stop it. Now, in regard to the Second Amendment very specifically, there are currently 25 states in the Union that have constitutional carry, no permit required. We're about to get the 26th added to that. There are 24 states in the United States where you can carry your handgun. In the state capital, there are 14 states, including your glorious state, where you can take a loaded AR, sling it across your back, walk into the legislature, sit in the gallery and watch the proceedings. Now, I am not suggesting that. Just to be clear, but I'm saying you can do that. Do you really think we couldn't find 13 houses out of literally 99 houses in all the legislatures in the United States of America that would say no to that? I mean, it's just, it's an outrageous fantasy that there could be a runaway convention that would repeal the Second Amendment or anything really bad. And I'll close with this. And that is, I made this offer and I'll make it to y'all here. My personal email address, kenmeckler at cosaction.com. If you're worried about it, then tell me the amendment you're worried about as a conservative or a libertarian. Make a list of the 38 states that will ratify. Send it to me and we'll have a personal conversation. I've made that offer to millions of people over nine and a half years. I've never received any more. So I'll close with that and pass it to you. Yeah, Mark, I think you've covered, uh, covered most of it. And just, just remember that the people who are going to be appointed as commissioners are in all likelihood all going to be state legislators. I mean, I'd, I'd be surprised. It might be a handful that are not state legislators, but they're all going to be state legislators. They're all going to be elected officials. They all have worked in, in legislative bodies before. And you're and what people are suggesting is they're going to go to the most important thing they will ever do in their life. Under, I mean, the weight of being at the first convention of states to propose amendments under the full light of the national media and, and all their constituents and everybody that they know, and they are going to violate the oath of office, and they are going to betray everything that they ever campaigned on in their elections to destroy the country. Now, I know people don't trust 
their elected officials. And I, and I get it. But that's a suicide mission that you're saying that not just one or two, but dozens and dozens of delegates. Because it's not just one delegate per se. There's, there's a, there are delegates, there'll be maybe three, four, five, could be as many as 10 or 12. And so you're saying dozens and dozens of elected officials who have worked their lives in the vineyards to protect conservative causes, who voted for this to limit the power of the federal government, are going to come under some spell when they go to a convention. Or there's going to be this pressure, and they are going to abandon all reason in the light of day to the condemnation of every conservative and their, their family, their, their constituents, and destroy their political careers to propose an amendment that could never be adopted because no radical amendment, as Mark just laid out, could ever possibly pass ratification of 38 states. That, ladies and gentlemen, is farcical. The idea that there's a runaway convention is a farce, it is a red herring, it has no chance of happening. I'll tell you what has a chance of happening. The highest probability coming out of this convention is nothing is ratified. That would make sense. Why? This country's really divided. We could get the 34 Republican states that could pass this resolution. We're up until the last election, there were 31 state legislatures controlled by Republicans, both houses. And if we'd had a good election night, which we did not, we I saw there was a scenario for us to get the 34. If we had a red wave, we could have gotten to 34. We'd have won Minnesota. We had a chance of winning Nevada. And this year, Virginia's up, and we're only, we have one seat there. We have one house there, and we're only two, sh two seats serving the other. So we could have gotten to 34. You show me how to get to 38. It's not there. It's tough. In order to get amendments passed, once we get to convention and send them to the states, to get 38 states... I mean, you're going to have to get, like, Michigan. You're going to have to get Maryland. I mean, that's tough. On the other side, it's harder for the Democrats. They only, you talk about blue states, there's about 14, 16 of them. You need 38. You need deep red states to get to 38 to pass a crazy left-wing amendment. It just... Anybody who believes this, sit down with a map and get 38 states who would do this. Anything you want, anything you can make up. And you look at the states that have to approve this, and you say, well, there's no way. There's no way. I get it. One of the things, see, the left has figured this out. They know that you don't trust your elected officials. That you don't trust government. So the best way to get you to not support this is to sow fear based on that. And you're buying it. And all I'm saying is, look at the facts. Look at the fact of what it would take to get 38 states to ratify anything that you're worried about, and it's impossible. And I underscore that. First, in my opinion, it's impossible for an amendment to be proposed. By the way, there's a very good chance that would be taken to court. And now the Supreme Court may not knock it down, but the idea that that people are going to destroy their careers on a on a impossible task of getting an amendment passed that has no chance of being ratified 
People are not generally suicidal when it comes to these types of things. In fact, what you do know about your member of Congress, a member of the legislature, is they like to get reelected. This will guarantee that they will never be elected again in their life. So term limits. Well, yeah, okay, that's a different issue. So I'm just saying, any rational, any rational view of this is not, it will just tell you that this argument is specious and should be discarded in the dustbin of arguments. Sure, and then we'll get to the questions, everybody. Yeah, I want to add. I want to add one more thing because conservatives, one of the things that I think makes us different fundamentally from progressives or liberals is that we like to know what the foundations of our arguments are. And this is really important. We should always make sure that we're doing this. We need to know where the things we're arguing come from. And as both of us are attorneys, please don't hold that against us. But as attorneys, one of the things we're trying to do is be very clear the difference between allegation and fact. And one of the things that the left likes to do is they like to say things, allege things, and then they allege that the things they're alleging are facts, just because they said them. And so I always want to know, well, where'd you get that from? You know, why do you think that? Is there some place I can look where you got those facts from? So it's important that you know where the runaway convention argument comes from. And most people don't know this. And it's not unreasonable to hear runaway convention run, it's, it's scary, so they don't know where it came from. Where it comes from is in the 1970-73, to be exact, we get one of the most evil decisions ever issued by the United States Supreme Court, and that's Roe versus Wade. That decision is signed by Chief Justice Warren Burger. So it's his court, it's the seminal decision of his entire legal career. Not long after, states started passing Article 5 applications to overturn Roe versus Wade. And at that time, we're actually moving towards the bicentennial of the Constitution. And there's a commission set up to celebrate the bicentennial. On that commission is Chief Justice Warren Burger. Also on that commission is a great fighter for life, a constitutionalist, I think one of the greatest women on the right in Amer modern American history, Phyllis Schlafly. And they become friends. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. She had a respect for him. You know, he'd become the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But she made a fatal mistake in reason, and that she asked him what he thought about the idea of calling a convention. At the time, they were using a, the idea of a convention to overturn the seminal decision of his career. So she said, Mr. Chief Justice, what do you think about the idea of this convention? What do you think he's going to say? Great idea, Phyllis. Why don't you destroy the seminal decision of my entire life? And instead, what he said is, for the first time in American history, we might have a runaway convention and lose our beloved Constitution. By the way, if you read all of his writings, everything he ever wrote in his life, every word he ever spoke publicly that was recorded, he never spoke once in his life, never wrote a word in his life about Article 5 until that letter. He then goes out, and we document all this on our website, you don't have to take my word for it, and got two professors, one from Harvard and one from Yale, to write law review articles about the idea of a runaway convention. The goal was to use the right against itself to prevent them from using the remedy of the Constitution to save the Constitution. So that's where this comes from. David Horowitz, is, who is the greatest modern chronicler of the American left, has written an entire piece on this. He did the research. He says this is left-wing propaganda that has been perpetrated against the right and is now a virus on the right being used against itself. This is a very common method of the left in America. So it's important that you know this, and there is a through line, by the way, that you can see in the American body politic now, because 
Five years ago on Good Friday, every single radical leftist group in America, with its Common Cause Center on Budget and Policy Priority, La Raza, MoveOn.org, Plant Parenthood, they all signed a press release. Over 250 groups have signed this press release right now, all radical leftist organizations, saying that this is the worst thing that could possibly happen in the United States of America. This is the radical left. Just a couple of weeks ago when I was on Tucker Carlson, Media Matters did an entire expose on their interview, and they said these people are horrible and terrifying because they intend to do away with the administrative state, shrink government, impose term limits, and impose a balanced budget amendment. <laughs> I wanted to send a check, but I couldn't figure out where to send it. So the radical left is entirely aligned against this, Virtually every major nationally known figure in the United States of America who's spoken on this, Mark Levin, Ben Shapiro, Sean Hannity, Governor DeSantis, and on and on and on, has aligned in pro-Convention of States territory. So you got to look at the lines and how they're drawn. Radical left on one side, and all the right-wing nationally known conservatives you know on the other side. So that's the foundation for Convention of States. Mark Meckler is fighting every day to help call the first ever Article 5 Convention of States. Go to conventionofstates.com pod to become part of the solution as big as the problem. Okay, let's go to the first question. The truth is we are a red state, but we have blue management. How can we be sure to get constitutional delegates to attend? Yeah, the, uh, the delegate selection will be done by the state legislature. Uh, I, all I can say is that uh, we, and, and this is really important to understand, the current, the current situation in the country is you sitting here right now, and I know, have very little impact on what's going on in Washington, D.C. You have no control over what Joe Biden does, what the Supreme Court does, what the Congress does. Yeah, you can elect the congressman, you can elect your senators, but you really don't have much real influence on the deterioration of freedom in this country and the accumulation of authoritarianism in Washington. Now let's switch. You pass a convention of states resolution. And now your state legislature is charged with the task of, of crafting a commission to select delegates, and then eventually after they pass a commission to say, here's how we're going to select our delegates. So that's the first piece of legislation. They'll pass a piece of legislation saying, okay, you know, we'll pick four from the House and four from the Senate, or you know, something like that. Well, are you going to have an impact on how they do that? The answer is, yes. heck yes you will. You show up in numbers like this and more, which I'm sure you will, and say, we want it done this way, then you're going to have an impact on that. So I don't know what they're going to do, but what I do know is you will have much more influence on that than anything they're doing in Washington, D.C. And that's exactly what the founders intended. And you say, well, I won't like what they do. Well, then do something about it. And you can. You see, this is an empowering step for you. Right now, you are not empowered. Oh yeah, you can get them all, like I said, it's not, I'm not discouraging you from electing good people to office in, in Congress and electing good people in office for the Senate. You need to do that. We count on Idaho to send us conservatives. But when it comes to 
fundamentally having the opportunity to scale back the power of Washington, you actually can do something to influence your legislature, how they select the delegates, and that who they select. So if they say, oh, we're going to pick four from the Senate, four from the House, eh, probably nothing wrong with that, or five, or whatever. But then you can actually start putting pressure on your elected officials, come up with a plan, never go to a, never, never go to a fight without a plan. So come up with a plan and make sure that people that you trust are in that delegation. But you have power to do that here. How? Look at this crowd. And there'll be bigger crowds. This is going to be the biggest thing that happens in this country. And so you have an opportunity to weigh in up here. And you say, well, you know, they may or may not do what I want. Well, they never may or may not, that's always the case. But the question is, where do you have the biggest influence? And it's here, not there. And, uh, um, we're talking about just making sure that uh, folks with the Convention of States represent the people, not the special interest, aka corruption. And can the Convention of States rescind laws that Congress has passed? I mean, that's a legally the way that question is phrased is a little bit difficult to answer. And the reason I say that, I'm not trying to weasel out and I will answer, but a convention of states is designed to deal with constitutional issues, not legislative issues. Right? So if you want to re repeal legislation, Congress has to repeal legislation. Okay, so that's the first level of the answer. The second level of the answer is that yes, it can in the sense that there are certain things that a convention can impose constitutionally once those once those amendments are ratified that will make things that Congress has done no longer constitution. So that's that's a bunch of language and a little bit messy, so let me give you a specific example. If the convention, which it would have the authority to do, says that uh, Congress no longer has the authority to deal with the environment, then there are laws that have been passed which give Congress the power and, and by which Congress creates the Environmental Protection Agency. And the, the Environmental Protection Agency then promulgates all of these regulations. If the convention were to pass and the states were to ratify an amendment making it unconstitutional for the federal government to be involved in, in the environment and issues surrounding the environment, then the EPA would no longer be a viable entity. And so in essence, while there wouldn't be a quote-unquote repeal of that legislation, that legislation would no longer be constitutionally viable, would no longer be allowed. So it's essentially a two-step process. Things that Congress have done already can be made unconstitutional via amendments. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Okay, can the convention do anything about George Soros? <laughs> Well, that was a fourth of a round of applause. <laughs> and rumor has it I'm funded by George Soros, so I take personal offense to that question. And that's the next one. Who financially supports the Convention of States process? Where can we inspect the contributions? Right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to address this one. You know, this is one I get all the time. You know, we're, we're a big money, dark money organization. But I can tell you specifically, I know exactly who's in charge of raising the money for Convention of States. 
because I sleep with her every night. It's not as bad as it sounds, it's my wife. And literally, my wife Patty is the lead fundraiser for Convention of States. Convention of States has, uh, we don't have any an office building, you know, we don't have a high rise in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else. We, we prefer to spend our money on target on, in the grassroots activities all around the country. We do have actually one high rise office. My office is in the house, uh, in Patty's office, my wife, it's up above the garage, so we call that the high rise. That's, that's the big fancy high rise office. We have over 200,000 donors to convention uh, states. Average donation fluctuates between $25 and $39 on average, and about uh, 70, 65, 70% of our budget comes from donors in, in that size range. People ask this question all the time, Ken, where can we inspect your donors? And the answer is, you may not. And you never will be able to if conservatives have anything to do with it. See, transparency is for government. Privacy is for people. And this is something that goes all the way back to the founding, that people need to be able to engage in political activity in private, because if they can't, then what they do is cancel culture shames them out of the game. As somebody who comes from California, I was there when Proposition 8 passed in California, the Marriage and Family Act. And it was a great day for California. And I know business owners who gave $50 to that who got driven out of business, picketed, protested, and driven out of the state because their names got revealed for giving 50 bucks to that effort. And I can assure every donor to this organization, whether they give five bucks or 500 or $5,000, Really, I'll do everything in my power to be sure that those donations are never made public. And it's, this is really important. You as conservatives don't buy into this dark money garbage. But this idea that dark, dark money is ruining our politics, if it weren't for donors who are able to give privately, then the right has no chance in this country. Now this comes out of the Citizens United decision, and I hear this all the time, Citizens United, this decision is, in my opinion, the greatest free speech decision of the modern era. And most people don't know this, you'll hear people on the left all the time talking about, we gotta overturn Citizens United, and every now and then I hear conservatives say this, and I'm, I'm horrified. Remember, a lot of you are old enough that you remember Ronald Reagan's time for choosing speech. Incredible speech, he's speaking up for Barry Goldwater, I think it's one of the best speeches in modern American history. That speech was financed by a group of donors, uh, business people who put the money on to buy the time on TV, to rent the auditorium and have that filmed and put on TV so that Reagan could give that speech. And the campaign finance regime came in behind that from the left to prevent that from ever happening again. Mm -hmm. And Citizens United is the decision that overturned that and allowed for the creation of groups of donors to get together and pool their money to engage in that kind of political activity because the unions do that every day and conservatives didn't have an alternative methodology. So this is our way of equaling the free speech playing field and we will always protect the anonymity of our donors. The left wants us to disclose. They want, they put up, the state of California had passed a law saying that nonprofit organizations have to disclose their donors for one reason. They want to go out and slam every conservative they can and destroy them. And, and you say, well, won't the right do the same thing? Well, number one, the right doesn't control the news media. The right doesn't control Hollywood. The right doesn't control the business community. 
all the major institutions that can slam donors for things that they don't like are all controlled by the left. And so for someone, I had someone out there ask, oh, I want to see your donors. Please don't call yourself a conservative because you're not. I mean, if, if you want to expose freedom-loving Americans to the abuse of the left, you are not a conservative and you don't care about freedom in this country. How will the Convention of States reverse Obama's destructive actions and amend the Constitution to prevent future presidents and party leaders from wrecking the U.S. Constitution and U.S. laws? Well, again, that's that's the whole point. There's three parts to the uh, to the Convention of States resolution. One is term limits. Other is fiscal restraint. But the third is the most powerful. And I know it, it frightens some people. So oh, it's very open-ended. Exactly. And you say, well, that scares me. It shouldn't. Because remember, it's open-ended as to how we can limit the power of the federal government. Don't you want it to be open-ended as we can limit the power of the federal government? So there's nothing to be afraid of. It's the reason the left doesn't go out and campaign against balanced budget, huh? The left does go out and campaign against term limits. But they're coming after us. It's because of that third element. Because that's what they're really concerned about. Because the third element can say, you know, the left can know that, that Washington can no longer regulate primary and secondary education. Wasn't in the Constitution in the first place. What's not in the Constitution? Healthcare. There's no, no authority in the Constitution for the, for the federal government to regulate healthcare. Almost half the federal budget is healthcare. So that's what they're afraid of. Because they're afraid of the things that gives them control over your life. That makes you dependent upon them. That's what they're afraid of. And so the thing that I hear a lot about, oh, this is very open-ended. Exactly. It's why they're afraid, and it's why this is so powerful. In having a debate about what the proper role of the federal government is, vis-a-vis -vis you, the local government, and the state government. And that's a debate that we should have in this country. We haven't had that debate in a long time. Why? Because there was no way for you to do anything about it. This creates a forum for a discussion for all of America to participate in during the time of this convention. Believe it or not, young people in our schools are going to actually learn civics because it will be all over the news. So the schools are going to have to teach what the Constitution is, what, the, what, what a balance of powers is, what checks and balances are, what, what the Constitution says, what the Constitution, how the Constitution has been changed. All of these things are now going to be a public discussion. And you know, I mean, you're activists, you're here. But you know your neighbors, they have no clue. They have no idea what the federal government has done to usurp the power from you, the localities, and the states. And how they have centralized power and divided this country. And I'm going to finish on that point. We talk about how divided this country is. And Mark gives this talk, and he, he does it better than me, but I'll do a short version of it. This country, of course, is divided. I've traveled to 49 of the 50 states, all one state I haven't been to yet. And I can tell you, Idaho is very different than Rhode Island. 
And things that work in Rhode Island will not work in Idaho. And things that work in Idaho will not work in Rhode Island. That's okay. It's okay. Why? Because we had a federal system of government that said, let Rhode Island be Rhode Island, let Idaho be Idaho. And we had a federal government for 150 years that didn't have the power to impose Rhode Island on Idaho or Idaho on Rhode Island. But that has changed. The reason our country is so much at, at, at cross swords with each other is because we have a federal government creating conflict by trying to impose values from one part of the country on another part of the country. It's anti-federalism. And so the opportunity here is to restore federalism. And I actually believe that we might get some of the some of the Californias and New Yorks and Connecticut's to agree with us on some of these things because when I go and I testify before state legislatures, they're as much afraid of the Donald Trumps and the Rick Santorums ever becoming president and imposing our values on them as much as we're afraid of the Obamas and Biden imposing their values on us. And once you reach that point, then you might make some progress and getting the federal government removing their power to do that to us. This has been the podcast version of The Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. Thank you for listening.